Okay, we are uh, one minute past the hour. Welcome back, everybody. Hope everybody had a good Labor Day weekend last weekend, and thanks for uh, thanks for joining tonight. I don't have any announcements, so without further ado, Robert has another lesson for us. Okay, hello, everyone. As usual, I'm going to start with the recording of the verses that we are studying today. So I'm going to click play, and Matt, let me know if they don't work for any reason. For not even his brothers believed in him. So Jesus replied, My time has not yet arrived, but you are ready at any opportunity. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I am testifying about it that its deeds are evil. You go up to the feast yourselves. I am not going up to this feast because my time has not yet fully arrived. When he had said this, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then Jesus himself also went up, not openly, but in secret. So the Jewish leaders were looking for him in the feast, saying, Where is he? There was a lot of grumbling about him among the crowds. Some were saying, He is a good man, but others, He deceives the common people. However, no one spoke openly about him for fear of the Jewish leaders. When the feast was half over, Jesus went up to the temple courts and began to teach. And then the Jewish leaders were astonished and said, How does this man know so much when he has never had formal instruction? So Jesus replied, My teaching is not from me, but from the one who sent me. If anyone wants to do God's will, he will know about my teaching, whether it is from God or whether I speak from my own authority. The person who speaks on his own authority desires to receive honor for himself. The one who desires the honor of the one who sent him is a man of integrity, and there is no unrighteousness in him. Hasn't Moses given you the law? Yet not one of you keeps the law. Why do you want to kill me? The crowd answered, You're possessed by a demon. Who is trying to kill you? Jesus replied, I performed one miracle, and you are all amazed. However, because Moses gave you the practice of circumcision, not that it came from Moses, but from the forefathers, you circumcise a male child on the Sabbath. But if a male child is circumcised on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses is not broken, why are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to external appearance, but judge with proper judgment. Then some of the residents of Jerusalem began to say, Isn't this the man they're trying to kill? Yet here he is speaking publicly, and they are saying nothing to him. Do the ruling authorities really know that this man is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from. Whenever the Christ comes, no one will know where he comes from. Then Jesus, while teaching in the temple courts, cried out, You both know me and know where I come from, and I have not come on my own initiative, but the one who sent me is true. You do not know him, but I know him, because I have come from him, and he sent me. So then they tried to seize Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him because his time had not yet come. Yet many of the crowd believed in him and said, Whenever the Christ comes, he won't perform more miraculous signs than this man did, will he? The Pharisees heard the crowd murmuring these things about Jesus, so the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Then Jesus said, I will be with you for only a little while longer, and then I am going to the one who sent me. You will look for me, but you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come. Then the Jewish leaders said to one another, Where is he going that we cannot find him? He is not going to the Jewish people dispersed among the Greeks and teach the Greeks, is he? What did he mean by saying, You will look for me, but will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? On the last day of the feast, the greatest day, Jesus stood up and shouted out, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me, and let the one who believes in me drink. Just as the scripture says, From within him will flow rivers of living water. Now, he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive, for the Spirit had not yet been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the crowd began to say, This really is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. But still others said, No, for the Christ doesn't come from Galilee, does he? Don't the scriptures say the Christ is a descendant of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David lived? So there was a division in the crowd because of Jesus, and some of them were wanting to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him. Then the officers returned to the chief priests and Pharisees and said to them, Why didn't you bring him back with you? The officers replied, No one ever spoke like this man. Then the Pharisees answered, You haven't been deceived too, have you? None of the members of the ruling council or the Pharisees have believed in him, have they? But this rabble who do not know the law are accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to Jesus before and who was one of the rulers, said, Our law doesn't condemn a man unless it first hears from him and learns what he is doing, does it? 
They replied, You aren't from Galilee too, are you? Investigate carefully and you will see that no prophet comes from Galilee. And that is it. That is the scripture for today. Hey, today the approach I am going to take is mostly explain the argument that is being had here. And, uh, you know, I, I paraphrase a little just to kind of bring out the points that people are trying to make. But before we get to that, I want to address the fact that Jesus goes to this festival in secret. Now, I call it a festival because that is a word that is familiar to us. Certainly, this would have been a a festive occasion, like a, a holiday that lasted eight days. It started on a Sabbath and it ended on the next Sabbath. So it was eight days. And this is one of the holidays that was commanded to the Jews that every male had to gather. So every male Jew would go to Jerusalem. They would stay in tents. I described some of this last time, so I won't go over it again now. But the point is, you have thousands of people not just from Jerusalem, but from all over the Greek world. Jesus, uh, it's actually a little bit unclear when he goes, but it is clear that he remains hidden until the middle of the the middle of the festival. Now, why would Jesus do that? Number one, at that point, there would be many, many people, and it would be easy for him to hide. And number two, it is unlikely that the authorities would have arrested Jesus and killed him in the middle of a party, essentially. And and perhaps I shouldn't call it a party, a festivity, I ought to say, because it's also very holy. It's also very important. Uh, and party perhaps loses that meaning of, of how uh, sacred this time is. Um, so, you know, Jesus has to be careful. Now, I think, and, and I spend some time on the blog talking about this, that to us, the readers of John's gospel, it may seem odd how careful Jesus needs to be, like how much danger he is in. And I think that's because when we read the gospel, we are reading events like little snapshots, and we tend to read them in quick succession. Like we, we tend to think that all seven chapters we've read so far have happened in a in a short period of time well if all these events are so quick one after the other we might think well why are the authorities so upset nothing all that bad has happened this has been very quick but that's not actually the case just to set the stage here just to set the, the context at this point we are a little over two years into jesus ministry not only has he done all the miracles that we have read, but there are many miracles that are not recorded. And that's not just me guessing, but the Gospels tell us that explicitly, that they're not recording every single miracle that is happening. Not only has Jesus been involved with several altercations with the leaders up to this point that are recorded, but we can also safely assume there have been several altercations that are not recorded. Uh, Jesus' uh, fame has certainly risen. Um, he, he, you know, people have heard about him all over the place. So he is becoming uh, a political figure. That's certainly not what he intends, right? We know that Jesus is not intending to be a political figure, uh, but he has become one for better or worse. So at this point, he is a threat to the system and the system is going to start fighting back. Jesus knows, knows this, of course, so he has to take some precautions. Uh, he, you know, his time has not yet come. It, it will come, and he is willing to make the sacrifice, but not yet. Well, what else do we learn? The authorities, they are taking the approach that Jesus is deceiving the masses, right? All the rubes, they, they just don't know anything. They're not well trained in the scriptures, so they are falling for what Jesus is saying. He's deceiving them. Well, that is the context to now really this argument that goes on between Jesus, the crowds, or the crowd, sorry, and the religious leaders. And also keep in mind when I say religious leaders, that's also the political leaders. This distinction between the two categories is a modern thing. At the time, they are one and the same. Well, first, 
they are amazed at the way that Jesus is able to speak and teach, right? And they say, hey, how can this guy talk the way that he's talking? It, because they're impressed, right? That he he seems to speak with eloquence, with authority. He seems to really know his stuff. How is this possible? And I think, again, as modern readers, we really miss the importance of this fact. The, Jesus' ability to speak and to teach works as a sign all of its own, as a sort of miracle all of its own. Why is that? Well, Jesus was a carpenter, uh, sorry, a carpenter, and he was the son of a carpenter. This is, of course, customary. The sons would have picked up the profession of their father. This is expected. So how does a carpenter learn so much about the scriptures? And not just that, but how does he become a good speaker? In the modern world, right, this would not seem all that remarkable. Like the example I give in the blog is, let's say that, I don't know, you're talking to a mechanic who's the son of a mechanic, okay? He didn't finish high school and he seems so well-educated. Maybe he's talking to you about you know, Plato and Plato's philosophy, and he's able to get into the original Greek of Plato's writings. Well, in this day and age, we may say, oh, maybe he has been watching YouTube videos, or maybe he went to the library and read some books, or maybe he downloaded an app that taught him Greek. All of these are very real possibilities. But in the ancient world, that was not possible. I mean, first of all, somebody would have to work all day just to make it, right? Just to put food on the table. And frankly, there were no resources to learn all this other stuff. So it would be a mystery. It would be astonishing. How can somebody who is not part of the elite, who is not formally trained, able to speak like this? Okay. And that in itself attests to the truth of what Jesus is saying when Jesus says, well, the answer to that conundrum is I was taught, I was directed by the Father, by God. Um, and by the way, when I use the example of the mechanic, I certainly do not mean that in, in, in a derogatory way towards mechanics. I'm just saying somebody who, you know, we could use accountants. I'm an accountant. You certainly would not expect an accountant to be fully trained in Plato and Greek, so to speak. Okay. I'm just picking an example. Um, okay. So Jesus kind of answers the, the audience it, by explaining that his teachings are not from him. Okay, they come from the Father. And he adds a little jab in there that, and I'm paraphrasing here, saying that if anyone is seeking seeking God, they would they would be able to discern this, right? They would recognize that what Jesus is saying comes from God. Why you might ask? Well, because the Jews have the law, the prophets, and the writings. That's a way of referring to the Old Testament, by the way, the, the Jews would uh, divide the Old Testament in those three parts, the law, the prophets, and the writings. And many times in the New Testament, you you, you see that reference okay, to, all, to, to the three things, the law, the prophets, and the writings. Well, by saying that, by saying, hey, if you were seeking God earnestly, you would recognize the fact that my words come from God. It really is an attack at them saying, you're not seeking God, not doing so earnestly anyways, because we're going to get into this issue of hypocrisy. Moreover, this idea that Jesus has been taught by the Father, which he claims to be his Father, is something intimately familiar to the culture at the time. The dad would have been responsible for teaching his children the Shema, which is a prayer from Deuteronomy, Think like the Lord's Prayer that we would recite today, although the Shema is quite a bit shorter. The Torah, right? The first five books of the Old Testament, what we would call the Pentateuch, and Hebrew, the language. Uh, that you know, you might be wondering why does the dad have to teach him Hebrew? Because at this time they're speaking Aramaic, not Hebrew. Now Aramaic has uh, the same source as Hebrew is also a Semitic language, but it is different enough that just because you spoke Aramaic does not mean that you spoke, understood, or were able to read Hebrew. Think of like Italian and French, 
both being Romance languages, just because you know one does not mean you automatically understand the other. Um, now, I quote from Psalm 119, because I think that although, well, although Jesus does not explicitly reference this Psalm, this is certainly the idea that he is after. And it is kind of, it's kind of impressive once you read the Psalm next to John 7, how well they align, how work, how they work together. So I'm going to read a, a few verses from that. Um, and then we'll move on from this. It says, Oh, how I love your law. All day long I meditate on it. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for I am always aware of them. I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your rules. I am more discerning than those older than I, for I observe your precepts. Right? This is the exact idea that Jesus is expanding here. How do I know so much? And not only how do I know so much, but how do I know more? than the religious elite that has been formally trained on this because I ponder on the commandments of God. And this quotation that I have on the blog is somewhat lengthy. It ends with a phrase that goes directly into the next part of the argument that Jesus is having here. It says, uh, I hate people with divided loyalties, but I love your law. Okay. That idea of, I hate people with divided loyalties. This takes us to the very next section in the argument. Because Jesus then makes an argument that I, I paraphrase. He says, effectively, whoever one is serving, one is honoring. I am serving the Father, so I am serving God. Therefore, I am honoring God. Who are you guys serving? In other words, who are you guys honoring? Speaking particularly to the religious leaders, right? Jesus is accusing them of hypocrisy. Because if, if you go back to the reading for today, he says, hey, you know, Moses gave you the Torah and you don't follow it. Effectively, you are a hypocrite. This is explicitly set forth in in the gospel of matthew so i'm going to read this just because the you know i think this explains what jesus is getting at in matthew 23 1 through 7 jesus says the following uh, sorry or, or uh, the gospel says then jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples the teachers of the law and the pharisees sit in moses seat you must be careful to do everything they tell you but do not do what they do for they do not practice what they preach. They tie up heavy, cumbersome loads and put them on other people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for people to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. They love the place of honor at banquets and the most important seats in the synagogues. They love to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to be called rabbi by others. Jesus is making the exact same accusation here. I am serving God, and therefore I am honoring him. You guys are not. You guys are pretending to serve him. Uh, but who you're really serving is yourself. So you bring honor to yourself. You can see why this is escalating, right? The, the, the religious leaders were already unhappy with Jesus, and it only gets worse. And finally, we get kind of the crux of the issue as far as like, if, if we were to say, why exactly do the leaders want to kill Jesus? Well, Jesus says, you want to kill me because of the one miracle I did. Which one? We've actually already read it uh, we, and talked about it. It was in John 5, and it is the healing during the Sabbath. Right? And that's when the scripture explicitly tells us they decided to kill Jesus even more. So before they were kind of decided to do it, and then that was it. They decided that was the course of action. Now, before I get to that, there really is kind of a, a funny moment because when Jesus says, hey, you're, you're seeking to kill me, they deny it, right? They're like, nah, we, we're not really 
wanting to do that, which is a clear lie. Even the crowds point at Jesus and go, hey, isn't this the guy that they want to kill? Um, so, you know, good old gaslighting. I guess it, it has happened for thousands of years. But the way they respond is by saying, you are possessed by a demon and no, we're not trying to kill you. Now, why is this funny? Because that accusation of demon possession, it, it effectively amounts to a capital sentence. Why, you might ask? Because in Exodus, the Jews are commanded to kill a sorceress. Okay, If anyone is a sorceress, you must not allow her to live. Well, if Jesus truly was demon-possessed and he was doing all these magical acts, I'm going to call him that because... If, right, if we assume that he's a, a sorcerer, then this would not be miracles. This would be some kind of dark magic. So, again, if Jesus is demon-possessed, he, he's doing, you know, dark magic, and he's deceiving the masses by it, then certainly he should be put to death. So it's a little incoherent to say, hey, you're demon-possessed, but we're not trying to kill you. You kind of have to pick a lane and stick with it. Well, again, uh, clearly what they're saying is, is not true. Um, I will insert one caveat. You could read the text like the crowds are saying, we're not trying to kill you. And the crowds perhaps are unaware that the leaders are trying to kill Jesus because you would have had people from all over the place, including outside of Judea. Uh, so maybe they're unaware. But I, I think it is more fair to assume that when the crowd speak, truly it is the leaders who are speaking for the crowd, right? But I want to throw that in there in case you want to interpret that verse slightly, slightly differently, although I don't think it would make much of a difference. Now, again, why are they trying to kill Jesus? Because Jesus healed somebody on the Sabbath. I quote the verses from John 5 on the blog. I'm not going to reread them because we studied them really not that long ago, so I'm sure you remember them. Um, now, I have a thought to offer here. Why are they? Why are they trying to kill him for this particular miracle? It could be that the religious leaders are sincere and they're truly offended by this, like more so than anything else Jesus has done or said. I think that this is the crime that is easiest to prosecute, okay? It is very easy to establish that Jesus did this on the Sabbath, and it's somewhat easy to argue that this was work, which that those are all the elements, right, of the crime, work on the Sabbath. So if you really want to take Jesus down, if you really want to kill him, go with the crime that's easiest to prosecute. I think that this is a very practical thing. Um, but perhaps they were sincere, although I don't think so, because again, the accusation from Jesus to them is that they are hypocrites. But do with that as you will. Now, the crowds are a little bit confused by the claim that Jesus is the Christ, although they're aware of the claim, right? The crowds, they repeat that claim because they say he can't be the Messiah because uh, whoever the Messiah is, he will be a secret Messiah. We will not know where he comes from, and we know where this guy is coming from. He comes from Galilee. This is contradictory to just a few verses down where they say, hey, he can't be the, the Messiah because the Messiah must come from Bethlehem. Okay. So they're referring to two different traditions. The tradition that the Messiah will come from Bethlehem that is a prophecy that is in Micah in the Old Testament, and it's repeated in the New Testament. This other idea that the Messiah will come in secret, this apparently refers to a rabbinic tradition. So not something that is in the Old or New Testament, but a tradition outside of the Bible that said that the Messiah, the, the Messiah's location immediately prior to him revealing himself would be secret. So not necessarily where he was born, but where he was hiding right before the big kind of coup de gras. So actually the tradition from Bethlehem and the tradition that the Messiah would be hidden until his full reveal are not explicitly contradictory, but 
at any rate, the, the main point of, of this section is irony. And it is, it's kind of amazing, right? Because the crowds are saying, no, he can't be the Messiah because if he was the Messiah, we would not know where he comes from. And what has Jesus been telling them? You do not know where I come from. I come from heaven. I come from the Father, right? I come from God. And they miss that. They don't know that. They're still thinking Jesus comes from Galilee, and they're missing that, which is, again, not correct, right? Jesus does come from Bethlehem. That is where he was born. Uh, Galilee is just where he grew up. But even if we ignore that, even if we took Galilee to be the right answer, they're missing the more meaningful place where Jesus comes from. Jesus comes from God. And so effectively, even if we take their accusation to be true, the Messiah must come from a secret place. True. Correct. He did come from a secret place. He came from the Father, and you still do not recognize that. So the, the irony is just incredible. Well, some react in disbelief. Some believe, though. Some actually think, hey, surely nobody can come after this guy and do more miracles or more impressive miracles than he is doing. So this is the guy. This is the Christ. This is the Messiah. Remember those two words mean the same, by the way, the Christ and the Messiah. Christ would just be Greek and Messiah would be Hebrew. But we are talking about the same idea. Whenever in, in this passage, they talk about the prophet. We have already mentioned that. That would be the prophet in Exodus that is prophesied by Moses, right? That there would be a prophet greater than Moses that would come later. But we've talked about that many times before, so I'll, I'll leave it at that. Well, the the authorities are, or uh, the officials, sorry, officers, that's the word in the text. The officers are commanded to arrest Jesus. And then Jesus says to them, I will go where you cannot follow. Now, this is also slightly humorous, right? It makes it sound like Jesus is running away. Like, right, the police is coming to arrest Jesus and Jesus is gone. Okay, I'm going to go where you can't follow. So I'm going to flee effectively. Uh, they go, what are you talking about? Where are you going to go that we cannot follow? Are you going to go into the Greek world? At this time, there were many Jews that were dispersed among the Greek world, meaning the non-Jewish country. And they're called the diaspora. Okay. So that's what they're asking. Are you going to join the diaspora? Are you going to join kind of the Jewish exiles that are out in the Greek world? Uh, I shouldn't call them exiles because it's really not by force, but uh, I think you, you get what I mean. Uh, are you going to go teach the Greeks? They say. Now, this is really the same misunderstanding to where Jesus is coming from, right? They do not understand that Jesus comes from the Father, that Jesus comes from God. So they also cannot understand that where Jesus is going is back to God. Right? They just cannot grasp this idea or perhaps they refuse to grasp this idea. Again, we find irony here. This idea uh that are you going to go teach the Greeks? They are, that's an insult, right? They're aghast by that, uh, that this Jewish rabbi would go teach uh, non-Jewish people. And really the answer is yes, uh, because after Jesus ascends to heaven, then comes Paul, who is the disciple to the Gentiles, and the message of Christianity will spread to the non-Jewish people. Um, so it, it's kind of funny that I, I'm picturing that Chad Yes meme. That's pretty much uh, what fits in this context where they say, will you go teach the Greeks? Yes, uh, that is in fact correct. Um, well, and then the climax of, of the story is Jesus uh, shouting, or, or what is the word that, that it says, uh, I don't know if it says shouting or, or saying aloud, something along those lines. Um, at any rate, I don't want to waste time looking for that. Um, but exclaiming loudly, whoever's thirsty, come and drink. Okay, This is the same message that we have seen throughout the Gospel of John. In fact, um, we saw this early on, right, with the woman at the well. 
where he says, "If you knew who I am, you would have asked me for the living water." It's the same thing here. I provide that living water, and and, and it's free, right? We talked about it at when we studied that passage in chapter four. If anyone who's thirsty come drink, this is free. The scriptures testify about this eschatological time when food and drink would be plentiful and would be free, and anyone who is hungry or thirsty would have their fill. That's what Jesus is saying here. Now, what's neat about chapter 7 is that it is finally explicitly connected to the Spirit. Okay, This idea of water, before we can clearly tell what it means. I mean, I'm not saying that it's a huge mystery to the reader, but chapter 7 goes, just comes out and says it. Jesus is talking about the Spirit. Um, so, like we had discussed, at the new birth, you know, at the birth from above, a believer is indwelled with the Spirit of God. And there certainly is a change in the believer and an empowering. Now, this water motif would have had special significance at the time. And by at the time, I mean in this particular festival. Because part of the festival was a water-drawing ceremony where they would draw water from uh, the Pool of Siloam, and then they would pour this water and blood on the altar. It's a little bit unclear what the ceremony meant. It perhaps was a ceremony um, that was a sort of prayer for rain. Perhaps it was... It was uh, less pagan sounding and it was more connected to Torah and to wisdom since these were often signified or represented by water. Uh, This ceremony, by the way, is not part of the original festival, as in the way that it was established in Exodus. It started sometime in the intertestamental period. When I say intertestamental period, I mean between the time the last book in the Old Testament was written, and the first book in the New Testament is written. So, um, but it's important to to picture this, right? They're having this water drawing ceremony, so they they clearly are meaning something very special and holy with the water. And Jesus gets up and exclaims, "I provide the water." Uh, it, it would have been a very powerful moment. Um, and notice that Jesus does this quote, on the last day, on the greatest day. I think there's clearly a double entendre going on here, uh, which points to the end times, to to the final redemption that God is providing for everyone. Then verses 40 through 49 repeat the exact same themes. It almost has a chiastic structure. If you don't remember this from the from the very first session of the Bible study, uh, chiasm is when you say something frontwards and then backwards. Like if I said that woman is beautiful, I uh, I called out to her. I spoke to her. She's very pretty. Okay, like you can see how I said, you know, A B then B A. And sorry for that cringy example. But uh, we see almost, not quite, a chiastic structure here, like I said, where verses 40 and 49 summarize and repeat what has been said up to this point in the chapter. The last part of the chapter is Nicodemus, who we met in chapter 3, speaking up. Now, we can imagine, although we're not certain, that he was a little bit meek, perhaps a little bit shy, because there's been lots of talk about killing Jesus and... It seems like it's kind of late to the party when Nicodemus speaks up. Um, although I am reading a little bit into the story there, perhaps I, uh, you know, I'm reading too much into it. But at any rate, he says, "Hey, shouldn't we hear him out?" And this really would have been required by the law in a, a case that could involve uh, the death of the accused. And the elites respond rather aggressively. Right? They say, "You're not from Galilee, are you?" In other words, you're not on his side, are you? And the implication is very much, are you with us or are you against us? And we're going to kill him anyways. We're not going to honor the law. This is very damning 
for the religious leaders, the people who are supposed to be upholding and teaching the law. So, you know, certainly the temperature has has risen. Uh, the religious leaders are very upset at Jesus, and Jesus is now telling the crowds, you know, very explicitly, very loudly, "I provide the water of life." You know, I am the guy that you guys should be following. I am the Christ. Now, the last thing that I want to discuss today, and Matt, I don't know if you want to announce questions, and then I'll I'll get to the last topic I wanted to cover. Sure, as usual, if you have a question, point of discussion, anything you'd like to speak about, just type the word question in the chat, just the one word question, and I will get to you in the order that they are posted. Okay, the last thing I want to cover is a little bit unrelated, but I, I think it's important. Um, it has to do with verse 53. Now, verse 53 is omitted from many modern Bibles all the way to verse 811. The whole section, the whole chunk of verses are omitted. They contain the story of the adulterous woman who was going to be stoned and then Jesus says, right, he who is without sin, cast a first stone. It is a story that's very familiar, even to non-believers. In fact, I think it's one of the most popular stories from the New Testament. And yet it is omitted. Why? Because we are pretty certain that that story is not original to the Gospel of John. I covered this, again, on the very first session of this Bible study when I spoke about textual criticism. So I don't really want to go over textual criticism again, what I would like to discuss is, particularly as Christians, what do we do with, with a story like this, right? It seems to me that we have three options. One, we could say, hey, this is not original. Uh, let's not even read it. Let's not talk about it. Done deal. Now, there's a little bit of an issue there because this story has been read by Christians for centuries. So, if we don't read it at all, we're going to be unaware of something that, you know, almost all Christians in the past would have read and talked about. Um, but also, most scholars agree that this text is, is genuine. It's a genuine tradition from the time. It's just not part of John's gospel. Perhaps it was written by Luke. The reason we think that is because of the Greek in the text. It matches the syntax, the writing style that Luke uses. And in fact, some of the old manuscripts do place the story in Luke, not in John. Okay. Now, on the other hand, you could say, I think that the, the story is true. I know that just about all the evidence and just about all the scholars agree that the story doesn't belong in John, but I think it does, darn it. And so I'm going to treat it as Bible. Okay. That's another possibility. But there really is a middle approach. And to do this, and I'm going to try to do this very quickly. I know that it's 740 and I want to leave time for questions, but give me three or four more minutes and um, I would like to cover this. Well, there is a middle approach. And to explain the middle approach, I actually want to talk about something that will seem unrelated, but I promise it isn't. You guys may be aware that the Old Testament canon of the Catholics is different from the Old Testament canon of the Protestants, right? Our New Testament canon is identical, but in the Old Testament, the Catholics, quote unquote, add seven more books. These books are often called the Apocrypha, but let me just say briefly, and if anyone has a question, I can explain this further. That really is a misnomer. We should not be using that word. What the word we should use is deuterocanonical. Now, the reason for that is that Apocrypha is a very negative term that refers to secret writings that are clearly deceptive, that are clearly false. The early church used the word Apocrypha for things like the Gospel of Thomas, which everyone agrees is a later writing that is false. Okay. The early church never refers to the deuterocanonical books as apocryphal. There's technically two exceptions where the church father uses a term for them, but the, his later writings make it clear that he just was 
a little loose with his language. He actually still used them and taught from them. So again, there's really not any real example of the early church calling them apocryphal. Now, what did the early church do with these writings, right? These seven books that are not bad, they're not part of the Apocrypha, but they were also not part of the canon. Well, honestly, the early church was okay with a second canon. Okay, By a second canon, they really meant books that were good to learn wisdom from. They were examples of piety from which a believer could learn how to live a pious and wise life. But because they were not part of the primary canon, they were not good to draw doctrine from. Okay, so we should not draw doctrine from the seven books, but we can use to learn piety. And again, I know that I'm covering a huge topic, a very controversial topic in like two minutes, but the reason I bring that up is because I think that that is a very good framework to use when we come to verses like 753 to 811. This is a text that is probably a Original, just not to John's gospel, but that is genuine, that it probably uh, relates a true tradition. Um, and I think that we can put it in that second tier and we can say we can learn piety from it. We can still read it and learn. We should just not uh, draw doctrine from it, right? Like if you have some doctrine that is entirely grounded on these verses, then I, I think that's a problem. But if you read these verses and you go, wow, you know, maybe I shouldn't accuse people when I myself are, you know, engaging in, in sin or something along those lines. That would be perfectly fine, right? Uh, as an example of piety. So I hope that helps if, you know, if you uh, struggle with this at all, when you see these verses that, that are taken out, uh, maybe this framework helps you at all. But I'll leave it at that, and then we can open the floor up for questions. Sure. Thanks, Robert. Uh, looks like everybody's shy tonight. I don't have any requests for questions. So if you uh, would like to talk about any topic in the uh, lesson, go ahead and type question in the chat. I'll get to you uh, momentarily. Let's see. Um, I know that I know that this the potential inauthenticity of this uh, verse about the adulterous woman is sort of a sub point, but I'm I'm interested in how something like that happens and whether this is unique. Uh, do we have examples where we suspect other gospels were edited potentially by someone other? This, this one's different too, because it's not just like, it's someone else of importance who is alleged to have inserted this verse. It's not just a guy uh, who had nothing to do with it. It's another one of the, um, of the, what's the word that I'm looking for? The uh, gospel writers? Yeah. yeah. Or, but isn't there a word uh, for them? Anyway. My, uh, <laughs> apostles. Yes, that's the word. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Another one of the apostles, right? It's not just, it's not some random guy. So number one, uh, <laughs> do we have other examples of this? Well, I'll let you answer that first, and then I have a follow-up. Oh, we do. So actually already, I think it was like session 12 or 11. I don't remember. Um, whenever we covered the pool of Bethesda, actually the, the, the very verses that we're discussing of Jesus healing on the Sabbath, you might remember that there was one verse in that chapter that is entirely missing from our modern Bibles because we've determined it's not original. So that would be an example. But the other major example, to be honest, because you have these verses about the adulterous woman, the longer ending of Mark. So you also have I don't know, about a dozen verses, I don't remember exactly, at the end of Mark, that are probably not genuine or original to that gospel that we, you know, we've taken out effectively. Okay. Uh, so yes, there are other examples. So if we have one apostle editing the gospel of another apostle, which is what we believe was the case here, would that... Oh, no, 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 no. That, sorry, I, I, then I didn't well, make I'm, myself clear. Maybe I'm That's misunderstanding. Not, Is that now what's going on? Yeah, no. What we think happened here is probably Luke wrote those verses, but it's not that Luke oh, inserted them here. It's that people, like, people copied them. So somewhere along the line, 
uh, somebody was was copying the Gospel of John, and they had these other verses uh-huh. that were kind of floating around, and they were like, "Yeah, it seems like this is an okay place to insert these verses." But it wasn't oh. John, and it wasn't Luke. It so would have I, been someone. I thought you were saying that it was that it was Luke himself who who did this editing. So no, that's now what we're saying. No, no, no. Okay, no, because it would have because, been a copy of this later. Ah, a scribe. Okay. Uh, well then, because my next question was, would this have been done with the blessing of John, for example? Like, ah, go ahead and fix that. <laughs> but if it's someone else down the line, then obviously not. I thought this was something between the yeah. two apostles. Okay, yeah. all right. Yeah, well, someone down the line. And actually, one of the ways we can tell that the verses are not genuine is because when you look at the oldest manuscripts, these verses will appear in different places. Like sometimes they're right here at 7.53, but sometimes they're in a different place in John. Sometimes they're in a couple of different places in Luke. And so we know that these verses were like floating around. In, in, by floating around, I mean in some manuscript or whatever. And the scribe was trying to decide, oh, shoot, I don't know where these go. So they just like put them somewhere. Okay. All right. Uh, Daniel is up with a question. Daniel, if you're ready to go, go ahead and unmute yourself. Sure. Um, you know, I, I got to confess, I'm not as familiar as I would like to be with the, uh, the different manuscripts um, that we use for translation. But my understanding is, at the very least, that there is a, uh, you know, a so-called majority text that was the source for uh, the majority of our, our translations up to the point that we started to have these sort of newer ones like the, um, you know, the NIV and the, uh, the uh, English Standard Version, things like that. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, I have to say, um, the more this, uh, uh, to, you know, to, just to be frank, the more we have this kind of talk about uh, textual criticism and that sort of thing, the more it seems like the message of the Gospels gets watered down in general. Um, so, you know, wouldn't it make sense to uh, dispense a little bit, a little bit with the idea of examining styles and that sort of thing and focus more on, all right, what were the majority of Christians referring to, um, you know, through, throughout the majority of our history? Yeah. Well, that... You know, that is a difficult question, and, and I'll, I'll give my take on this, and of course, you know, you, you're free to disagree and, and share your thoughts, but um, it is correct that there is a majority text that's based on the Byzantine manuscripts, and I explained this on the very first session, so I won't recap it all, but the reason why we have so many more manuscripts from the Byzantine Empire is really for historical reasons, because Christians there were not persecuted as badly because they still spoke Greek. So the manuscripts remain in Greek and in a number of things. Um, the Alexandrian texts, which these are the ones from which we get the critical text, um, they are older and generally considered more reliable. And I think that it is, I think that it is dangerous and it would hurt our witness as Christians if we rejected the best scholarship. Um, uh, you know, I, I guess, think that I, then. I nom- oh, go ahead. Sorry, uh, go ahead. I just was thinking. I, I guess that's one of the things that's bothering me is, I, I get that you know they, there are some manuscripts themselves that are considered older, but uh, an older manuscript can still be a flawed copy, and not necessarily mm-hmm. more reliable. So I, I guess I'm still. I- well, I would encourage you to look into how they do textual criticism. I, it's just too lengthy of a topic for, for us to go deeper into it here. But listen to the very first session if you're interested. And maybe it'll give you like a sort of primer. Um, but uh, yeah, that, uh, but to be honest, we're arguing about almost nothing because if you took the Byzantine text and you took the Alexandrian text, we would agree on 99%. So even if that 1% suffers like this particular story, okay, like it's not the end of the world. It's not like the gospel falls apart. So I, I just want to put this into context. Sure. All right. Thanks, Daniel. Did you have any uh, follow-up on that or? 
I, you get all I, no, no, I'm. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, just just ask for me. Um, you know, I, I I'm what what mainly concerns me about this is I do I do see that people begin to, you know, they they begin to question. I, I think reasonably, um, the idea that uh, it's like what 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 tends to happen the kind of the Jesus Project people, you know, um, mm. is they they start to get like, well, you know maybe we can use this and start extending further and further into the text and, and, and basically piecemealing more and more of it out until, you know, you're, you're eventually left with hardly anything left. Yep. Well, uh, I think um, we should make a distinction between low textual criticism and high textual criticism. Low textual criticism is very much the science of looking at manuscripts and where they came from and how they were preserved and all that. And I think that that is something as Christians we should be open to. High textual criticism is really speculation saying, oh, the mir like miracles cannot happen. And so this text must be false how did they get to this false text? And it really is just speculation for people who a priori have decided that Christianity is false. And I think your concern largely goes to higher textual criticism. And in that case, I would be fully with you. Um, okay. So, um, it, Matt, if you, you don't mind, I see a question from Andy where uh, he has a question about the Apocrypha that he just wrote in the chat. Um, he says, or sorry, I think it's Andy who's saying this, um, whether Apocrypha is an appropriate term. I've heard the term and I'm not biblically illiterate. What does that, do you have any argument for or agent? Okay. Um, I think I understand the question whether we should be using the term Apocrypha or not. And look, I, I think it's clear by this point that I think I'm disclosing some huge surprise, but I'm clearly a Protestant. I'm not Catholic. Um, so I don't uh, have a Bible or I don't uh, normally read a Bible with the Apocrypha in it. But should we refer to those seven books in the Old Testament that the Catholics include as Apocrypha? Like I said earlier, Apocrypha really is talking about secret books, like books that are deceptive. Normally, books that would have been associated with the Gnostics, okay? Um, so it is a very negative term uh, for books that the church would not have read. Okay, they would not have used them at all. And the the books that the Catholics include in the Old Testament, uh, like First uh, and Second Maccabees, uh, Ben Sirah. Um, oh my goodness, and I I can't remember the other ones off the top of my head. I apologize, um, but those books they were read by the early church. Okay, the early church did use them and they used them as a source of piety like I was describing. So for us to call them apocryphal, it really is a mischaracterization of the issue. And in fact, uh, if you just to give you a little bit more history about this, these books did not become such a source of conflict between Protestants and Catholics until the the you know, in the 1500s, you get the Reformation and the Protestants, they tried to recover kind of an earlier canon, right? Because the Protestants were trying to go back to the church fathers. And the church fathers did not, for the most part, this is actually a much more nuanced discussion. They, for the most part, did not include them in the primary canon, okay? They were, for the most part, not included in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Um, and so the Protestants go, nope. We're going to go to that earliest canon. We're not going to include them. And in response, the Catholics go, and I'm paraphrasing here, uh, in, if, if you don't include these books in your Bible, you're a heretic. Now, up until that point, there was actually quite a bit of freedom in Christendom as to how you use those books. But no, I shouldn't say nobody almost nobody treated those books as being harmful, deceptive books that no one ought to read. And that's why I argue, and I think just about any Protestant scholar will argue they should not be called apocryphal, they should be called deuterocanonical. All right. Uh, 
Thanks, Robert. Uh, Donald, uh, Donald Bryan, go ahead and unmute yourself. Yeah. Already. Hey, great. Hey, Matt. Hey, Robert. Um, hey. Basic yes. question back into the text. Can you hear me? Okay. Yes, sir. Okay. Um, so um, I wrote a glean tonight, <clears throat> Robert, from your commentary was, yeah, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders want to kill Jesus because he healed on the Sabbath, but really the root of it is he keeps making himself equal with God, right? So yeah. maybe just a question within the narrative tonight is, well, why don't they just stay on that point? Yeah, uh, They're, they're going to get to it eventually, yes, but why not just stay on that point and keep hammering it? And could that be because they don't want to add fuel to the fire? <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's where I suspect that the healing on the Sabbath was just the easiest crime to prosecute, right? And I, you guys know this, I am an attorney, so I, that's kind of how I process this story. Perhaps that's my bias, but I put myself in the shoes of the religious leaders. Like, let's say that I want to get this guy. Um, as, a, as an attorney, you don't always get people on what you really think is like, the worst wrong that they committed, you get them on what's easiest to prove. It's just a very practical concern. And so if a religious leader, I just want to take Jesus down, um, it seems so easy to say, hey, did he do this on the Sabbath? There's a bunch of witnesses. Jesus does not deny it himself. And it brings with it capital punishment. Um, so I suspect, and again, Feel free to disagree with me that the reason they go after this particular issue is because it's easy to prove, it's easy to prosecute, and it has capital punishment. So it just checks all the boxes for what they want to accomplish. Makes sense. Thanks. All right. Thanks, Donald. Uh, I think we're all caught up on questions. We do have a couple minutes left. Uh, we could end a little bit early, or I have, I don't know, uh, another point of interest or yeah, unclarity please. if you're if you're interested but you mentioned this uh quote from uh, from the psalms i hate people with divided loyalties but i love your law and i know you explained that a little bit but i still i as someone uh that concept is new to me or that that text is new to me i'm still unclear on what that means if if there's if divided loyalty between say your loyalty to yourself or your loyalty to human law and the law of God or serving God is sort of the context in which we were talking about that. If that's bad and that's to be hated, what would, what law is referenced there and why is it to be loved? Uh, so uh, when he says the law, he means the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, ah, right? Of okay. the Old Testament. And so he's talking about God's law, essentially. Not, not exactly. Okay. Yep. It and I really need to spend a session talking about this because I think I think you would appreciate it particularly. This idea that Israel was supposed to be envied because of its law, because God's precepts are so good that other nations were to look at them and go, wow, like they really have something good going. The way that I think many nations today, for example, look at the American Constitution and they go, wow, like their Constitution is really good. They have freedom of speech. Right, they have the freedom to defend themselves. The government can't just uh, completely invade their privacy and so forth. Right, just like nations today are jealous of the American Constitution, the same was supposed to be true of uh, the Israelites in the Old Testament. And all this goes to say that the law of God is meant to be beautiful and life-giving, not, um, you know not this awful thing that I feel like people nowadays portray it to be. Um, so, and we can explore that some other session, but I hope that maybe answers your question. No, that makes sense. I, I, I was thinking your law referring to the law that you have created politically, uh, essentially, I see. Uh, but that's not yeah. what's being talked about there. So that makes more sense because uh, to me, when I read that, I think, well, you guys have your priorities all backwards, but you've really done it well, essentially. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying you have you have God's law ostensibly in your hearts, but you're not living it out. I do love that law. You're just not doing a great job yeah. of uh, putting it into action, I suppose. 
That's exactly right. Okay. He's saying you guys, you know, you preach it, but you don't practice it. Yeah. Okay. That makes more sense. Uh, thanks for explaining that to me. And uh, thanks everybody for joining tonight. Appreciate uh, your company and your questions and your discussion as always. Uh, we will be back uh, next weekend, uh, usual time. That'll be September 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern time. Did you have anything else to say before we're out of here, Robert? No, that was it. All right. Have a great night, everybody. Thank you.